you're listening to a Two Jackets podcast. Check out more at twojackets.com. Welcome to Dueling Sham Fiction. We're Two Jackets Productions. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. And I'm Marcus. This week we're switching it up with a challenge. Two writers will tackle a property they've never seen before in a literary battle royale. With only ten minutes to learn what they're writing about, who knows what will happen? There's only one way to find out. It's Dueling Sham Fiction! Hey everyone, Andrew here, and welcome to week two of Dueling Sham Fix. <gasps> Yay! Hooray! This Woo. week, Marcus and Eric are going head-to-head to write some sham fix based on the property that I will be pitching them. And this is really exciting because they have no idea what I'm going to tell them, which is not usually the case. Uh, but this time... <laughs> you mean we, we, we set these up ahead of time usually? What? Uh, peek behind the curtain! Um, <laughs> <laughs> but th- this week, because it's just me that has to pitch this thing, I am the one with all the power. It's I'm like that old saying. Cards. It's like the old saying, you know, two men can keep a secret when one is dead. <laughs> it's, it's, that's uh, a great saying. Yeah, that was so, our inspiration for doing Does that mean I need fix. to kill one of you? <laughs> oh, one of us will die. It is a competition. <laughs> I vote Team Eric. Oh! Not to die, to win, to end up alive. Oh, no! Oh, you should have been more clear. I'm going to kill you now. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so this week, yeah. So we're keeping the pitches a little bit shorter. Uh, I don't know how that's going to go because I'm pitching, so... Uh, <laughs> We'll We're just not going to have any info to go <laughs> off of. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I'm going to be starting a timer here, and I'm only going to have ten minutes to pitch this property to you, which I think I'll be able to do, even though I'm very long-winded, and this intro is already going on way too long. <laughs> um, but once I kick it off, um, guys, feel free to ask questions. But then afterwards, we are going to break off, and each of you will get uh, a separate question to ask while the other one is not listening, as well as bonus points for you individually. So, Woo. you guys ready for this? Yes. Yeah. Okay, I gotta bring up my timer. Here we go. <laughs> and oh, let's I'm do excited. it. Okay. So this week on Dueling Jam Fiction, we're going to be doing the leftovers. The ah. Ooh. The leftovers is an HBO program created by Damon Lindelof, who is no stranger to this show because he created Lost, which we covered in episode one. Uh, and it was also created by Tom Parada. Uh, he wrote who uh, wrote the novel that this is also based on, starring Justin Theroux, Amy Brenneman, Christopher Eccleston, Liv Tyler. The Doctor? Yes, The Doctor, the very same. And Carrie Coon. It came out in 2014. Season 3 will be out later this year. They haven't announced a release date, but it'll be sometime here in 2016. They're shooting it right now. And again, this is an HBO show, so you can get it on HBO, HBO Go, HBO Now, all those things. This is a high-concept drama. I think that's the best way to describe it. There are elements of fantasy and mystery. I mean, this is Lindelof we're talking about. But it is, above all, a drama. It is a very heavy, heavy show, (laughs) as I am about to describe. So, in the world of The Leftovers... Humanity is trying to live on in the aftermath of a global event called the Sudden Departure, in which 2% of the world's population vanished simultaneously. One moment, these people were there. The next moment, gone. All at the same time. 
So the events of the show take place three years after this event. It happened in 2011, and the show picks up in 2014. It is specific about those dates. And it follows two families um, that are trying to get by in this world. Um, They were each affected very differently by the event. And they're trying to get by without succumbing to grief and fear and madness. Because when something like this happens, the world goes all the hell. It is not post-apocalyptic. There's still civilization. But you can see cracks in the world because of this. So the first thing I will say, there is zero explanation for this. The show provides nothing. It is not a show about investigating into why this happened. It is about the people of this world and how they live on in the aftermath of this event. So, because there's no explanation, everybody's freaking out. And (laughs) because the event was seemingly random. It had nothing to do with being good or evil. It is not a Christian rapture because criminals, rapists, you know, just terrible people disappeared alongside the Pope and nice people and, you know, people that, you know, are considered pious or holy or good. Um, And in this world, because of this, religions as we know them are failing. People are stopping. They're no longer going. They don't have any uh, faith in those religions anymore and new ones are emerging. And the one that the show focuses on the most is called The Guilty Remnant. The Guilty Remnant is a very strange cult-like organization. They have chapters all over the world, from what I, I gather, definitely in the U.S. And these people, they dress all in white, they take a vow of silence, even when they're around each other, even when it's just them by themselves, they do not speak. They carry around notepads and write in them to communicate. And they are constantly chain-smoking. <laughs> constantly. Because their thing is they are living reminders of God's awesome power, is what they sell themselves as. And they just stand around and watch people and smoke. <laughs> and their whole thing is they don't want the world to forget what happened. As uh, the world tries to move on, the guilty remnant stays around to remind them of the event. Uh, But there are are other religions that have popped up, too. There's a guy named Holy Wayne, who a cult has sprung up around, and his whole thing is that he'll hug you and your pain will go away. (laughs) And then there are also these people that wear, like, targets on their heads, and... They are called. I don't. I think they just call them the target heads because the whole idea is that they're like, "Hey, there's a target on me. Don't miss me next time this happens." So there's all sorts of weird things happening. So the key thing that I want to pitch to you of this is the world. I'm going to give you some. I'm going to give you the characters that are on the show, but I don't necessarily want you to write from the perspective of these characters. What's interesting about the leftovers to me, and I think what you guys will find interesting, is the world that is sprung up after this event has happened. So, think. So, I'm going to more describe that. So, that's what I want you to be thinking about: is like what happens in a world where this is happening. So, mm-hmm. in the show, um, October 14th, which is the anniversary of when it happened, is called Heroes Day, and it's the anniversary of this departure, and people try to pay tribute to the departed. And as you can imagine, it's not a very happy (laughs) celebration. (laughs) Um, 
as people as again the the remnant uses it to kind of communicate the way they want people to never forget as people are trying to move on um also another like little world building thing is like in schools after the pledge of allegiance every morning they give people a time of silent prayer to pray for those that have left that have uh departed um there's a new sect of government called the department of the sudden departure um, which one of the characters works for, and she goes around interviewing people who have had family and loved ones depart and interview them for, like, federal benefits. And then there are, like, there's, like, a company that builds, like, uh, scale replicas of people that have departed so that they can be buried, <laughs> you know? Like, so there's a body to be buried. So there's all these things that just kind of spring up in the event, in the aftermath of this, um... And there's just, it's tense. Again, the world is stuck in this strange limbo because these people are treated as dead, but we don't know that they're dead. So no one knows how to really react in the aftermath. So everybody's angry or grieving, you know, like, but they don't know how to react because this is unlike, this is so unnatural and unlike anything that's happened before. Um, Do they disappear clothes and all? Yes, everything's gone. Yep, just vanishing thin air. Yes, and so yes, the tone of this show is very somber and melancholic, but it's also kind of dreamlike and hazy. One of the key themes is like people losing grip on reality, and some of that might have to do with supernatural forces. Some of it might just be inside their own heads. Um, the show does hint at the supernatural. I mean, the whole event in and of itself is very supernatural. Although, again, it does not offer an explanation. But because of these, this, like, tense, tightly wound, these characters, and it's very dramatic, and that's why I love the show, is that it's just such good drama, the hopeful or cathartic moments really stand out. So the show is not without hope. I mean, again, this is Lindelof. He is not uh, the sort of guy that is cynical. There's always hope in his work, despite how dark things get. So... Yeah, um, oh, and another thing I really want to hit on is religious references. There are a ton of religious references in the show, uh, specifically to the book of Job and the Gospels, so both Old and New Testament. Um, but people have visions, they're, I mean, people get stoned to death. Again, like, this kind of goes very, uh, there's a lot of biblical influences on the series. Um, but just an example of the way people, um, characters uh have live in this world um one of them played by uh christopher eccleson uh is a reverend at an episcopal church who you know his his um congregation are mostly gone and he can't afford to keep the church going because no money's coming to it because people don't want christian religion anymore so that's an example of someone who's trying to get by um his sister played by Carrie Coon. Her name is Nora Durst. She lost her entire family in the departure. Her husband and two kids both vanished, and she was present with them when it happened. So she is she is an example of a character who outwardly seems to be moving on and seems to be in acceptance of it, but privately is grieving deeply and like keeps her house as like um, in the exact same condition as it was when they left. She, like, keeps buying the same food and throwing it away. She doesn't eat it, but she just has to, like, keep everything the way it was when they left. But on the outside, she's very, you know, calm 
And then you have the Keith family at the center where the wife um, left to join the guilty remnant and the husband is the chief of police and he's trying to keep the peace between the new cults and the townspeople. So Do this these is just, people have names? No, because I don't want you to write that. <laughs> I want you to write about a world where this has happened based on the sort of things that this has happened. Uh, and it looks like I'm at the end of my ten minutes. So, yeah. <laughs> I uh, No, I, I very consciously didn't want to give you too much in terms of characters because that's not what I want you to write about. I want you to write about people in this world. Um given this high concept and the sort of trappings that I've given you, what sort of people exist in this world. Gotcha. So it's a little different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, are you guys ready for some, uh, you guys ready for some questions? Who wants to go first? I think I'll have to go first. Yeah. (laughs) All All right. right. Well, yeah, I'll back out. (laughs) All right. All right. Oh boy, Andrew! I, you know the obvious question is uh, why did you choose another Damon Lindelof piece? But that's that's meaner than <laughs> I, I made it to be. Uh, I'm, oh, I've you. actually had this on my list for a long time, so I'm excited to write about it and then maybe check it out. Yeah, the it's a good show. Big question I would have is: Does the show deal with the physical impact of all of these people disappearing at once? For instance, if one out of 50 people around the world disappear, you're going to lose pilots, which means you're going to lose planes, you're going to lose drivers, which will crash. Uh, you know, they're going to yes. be heart surgeons. It deals with all that? Yes, it does. Yeah, in fact, um, um, the Reverend, played by Christopher Eccleston, his wife and he were in a car when it happened, and uh, someone that was driving in the opposite direction of them disappeared. And that car careened and crashed into them and put her into a vegetative state. So that's like an example of that happening. So yes, there were lives lost as a result of this. Okay, awesome. Well, I mean, not you know, awesome for fictional <laughs> lives to be gone, but it's it's good that they, they deal with that kind of thing. Yeah, they do. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and in fact, the the lead character. Um, well, I don't. I won't give it away. But yes, it does. <laughs> yes, yes. People were could be have been shaking hands with somebody that just disappeared out of thin air. Okay, very cool. Uh, so, what are my bonus points? Your bonus points. I'm really excited, right, Marcus. So, I want a reference or an action involving a new religion that has sprung up as a result of the departure. So your story doesn't need to be set in this new religion, but you can also just like reference it. Something different than what I have described to you. Okay, cool. I can do that. I'm excited. I'm going to make you cry. That's going to be my extra bonus point. Yes, and I, I, I was going to say that before I sent you both loose. Well, so we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's bring let's get Eric, Eric back. in. I'll, I'll just get out of here. Get the heck yeah. out of here. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna, I'm gonna up, up and smoke it, like I'm one of the two percent. It's, it's my Poof. turn. It's my turn. Right. Go. Okay. Bye. All right, Eric. Hey, what's, Andrew. What's your, what's, what's your question? My super well thought out question is as follows: <laughs> Are there cuss words and or boobies in this? Oh yeah, it's HBO. Woo! Yeah. Fuck yeah! Oh, we man. got that. 
explicit rating. Oh, bitches. we got it. You just gave it to us. I haven't swore. I, I should have said that up front, but uh, yeah, it'll have the E tag on it, so people will know. And it's the leftovers. People know this is on HBO, right? Awesome. Uh, Fuck words slash titties. Yeah, man. This is this is heavy stuff, or this is heavy shit. Excuse me. Um, there you go. <laughs> this Better. this is this yes you absolutely have to have people swearing because people are really mad you know Good. in this world that this is I'm happened. mad too. I am mm-hmm. so upset about this. So your bonus point? Yes. I want a reference to or an action involving the strange behavior of animals. Oh. So something that keeps getting brought up in the show is how we don't know how this is affecting animals, but it clearly has in some regards. Um, I won't give you a specific example because I don't want to, but oh, ca- it, oh. this does happen. It, they're they're okay. a strange animal thing. So your story can evolve, you know, revolve around that, or it could just be a character referencing it. So strange uh, behavior such as rabbits eating other rabbits? Yes, would that, be? that would be strange. Mm-hmm. All right, that that's would, the sort of strange it. we're talking about. Yep. Gotcha. All right, let's bring Marcus back. Yeah, yeah, but he's not going to expect it because this yeah, is so this, much shorter we so than his quick, <laughs> So efficient. How's it going? Yeah. All right. So you both have your bonus points. You both have asked your questions. Uh, so one thing that I'm going to say, and Marcus already touched on it a little bit uh, during our one-on-one, uh, but I want you to send. I want to send you off with this additional little challenge. Um, this is a heavy show. It's it's somber. It's grief filled. It's about people trying to you know move on in the aftermath of kind of death but not really again it's more complicated so i want to feel something here you know this i i I, more than anything i want you guys to write something that will make me cry make me feel teary just you know that 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 feeling in my gut that i get when i get the feels so give me the feels this is gonna be an emotion off marcus are you up to the challenge a sad off. Who can make Andrew weep the ugliest? Ooh. And go. I'm pretty. I'm pretty ugly when I cry. Not all the <laughs> time. I, just when I cry. Come on. Just just to prime the pump. Uh, have you gained weight? Just. Uh... <laughs> now I'm just mad. <laughs> I get it, baby. You're beautiful. <laughs> all right. I think we're good though. I think yeah. we're set to go. Uh, so thank you all for. Uh, Listening into my very sad pitch. Uh, trust uh-huh. me, this is a great show. Very good drama. I love it. But I'm very excited to see what these two gentlemen have to offer. So, we will be back in a few minutes. See you in a minute. Woo! Hey, folks, we'd like to make a quick request. If you enjoyed the podcast, please support us by subscribing and get a new episode for free every Sunday. While you're at it, you might consider rating us as well. We like positive reviews, so if you have something nice to say, please say it. If you don't like the show, pretend you're writing a sham fiction of a positive review and get a little writing exercise out of it. That sounds like a sweet deal. All right, thanks for listening, and let's get back to the show. All right, and we're back all these minutes, mere minutes later to hear some fully formed words of like (laughs) around 1,500 words. God, you guys have crazy, crazy writing speed. Like, we have zero endurance. We're sprinters on (laughs) Sham Fiction. (laughs) 
and in everything else in life. <laughs> we live our lives a quarter mile at a time here on Shadow Fiction. All right, so we, we got two stories to read, so we need to get to them. So, guys, how you feeling? Just really quickly. You feeling good? Looking good? I'm feeling sad. good? Yeah. I'm sad as sad can be. That was the correct answer, because that's <laughs> what I want to be feeling here in a few minutes. So, uh, just to choose who goes first, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip. I'm going to flip the coin. Oh, flipping he's flipping it, a flipping coin. It. There it goes. Okay, Eric is going first. <laughs> yeah, hey. Um, you, uh, you are not going to feel sad. I didn't tell you who's tails. It doesn't matter. <laughs> this is not a visual podcast. Um, uh, Eric, you're going first. Great. All right. The uh, funny thing is he actually did flip something. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, let's, let's do this. Okay. So this is Eric Carlson's version of The Leftovers. Um, yeah. Uh, just, just before I begin, oh, I'm, I've got to give you two a warning. Uh, you will notice a name referenced in my story that uh, might, uh, you might realize is a reference to something. And it's kind of a deep cut, so I don't expect Ooh. our listening audience to necessarily pick up on it. But I know you guys will. Um, and honestly, it was a placeholder that I never replaced. So, <laughs> okay, there you go. Sounds good. So, oh, this is like a Where's Waldo. I'm yeah, excited. exactly. It's just Waldo. <laughs> it's, you've got it. All right, here we go. Uh, I'm going to begin now. I wasn't sure what I had expected, but when I pictured hotshot Hollywood producer, I didn't see Bruce. He was tall, which I liked, but there was nothing else that was good about him. His hair was cut too short, he hadn't updated his wardrobe since Seinfeld was on the air, and that shitty goatee was enough to make me question whether I should have called off the whole thing right then. Of course, he was filthy rich, and when it came right down to it, that's the only reason I was there. He was standing next to his BMW just outside the Burbank film studio where he no doubt spent his days deciding which young set of tits was going to help his leading man save the world that week. You're late, he said as he opened the passenger door for me. I giggled at this and used my best 16-year-old girl voice to say, fashionably I hope. I caught a smile (laughs) from him as I adjusted the ludicrously short skirt I was wearing and sidled into the car. Bruce climbed in on the other side and looked me up and down. I smiled and made that face that said, I'm pretending to look self-conscious, but I secretly love the attention. (laughs) It was something I had mastered back when I actually was a 16-year-old girl and not just pretending to be one. You really do look like her, he said after a moment, a tone of greedy excitement in his voice. Like who? I replied, playing with the curls in my newly blonde hair. You're not thinking about some other girl, are you? I thought you'd be happy to see me after being gone for two whole years. He smirked and nodded after a moment, then put the car in gear. Not bad, but next time, don't be late, especially since I paid you in advance. The shots he sent me were a little blurry, but they were definitely her. It actually made me kind of excited. I mean, I'd never been a famous person before, so there was a thrill to it. Of course, Bruce wanted to make sure I'd get all the details right. The right hair, the right makeup, the right clothes, even the right underwear. And if anyone was going to notice something as trivial as the wrong underwear, it would be Bruce, I suppose. He was the one who took those fucking photos, after all. He wanted me to be exactly like she was the first time he saw her. 
a fresh-faced, 16-year-old wannabe actress filled to the brim with dreams of Hollywood stardom. I could be that, I told him, but it wouldn't be cheap. He was okay with that. The door to the club Bruce led me to had a no-nonsense and extremely pretentious black metal door with a single red number 9 painted near the handle. He knocked, and the door opened, revealing a huge bouncer. Evening, James. You know Miss Haley? Bruce said, gesturing towards me. James just nodded and stood aside, letting us in. The guts of the, p the place was like the inside of a huge creature, with a spine-like structure running down the length of the main room, complete with ribs that fanned out and down the convex walls of the place. To their right was a pitch-black, glossy bar, and to the left were blood-red lounge seats and booths filled with a sparse handful of people. The crowd was mostly younger women and older men, drinking and smoking and trying to look as rich and important as possible. One or two of them were sporting large targets on their heads, which turned in my direction as we walked towards the bar. I smiled shyly and averted my eyes the way celebrities always do when they're seen in public. It made me feel for a moment that I actually was her. It was kind of exciting. Bruce ordered a very expensive scotch for himself and a fruity concoction for me, which I took giddily like a girl who had never been allowed to drink before that very moment. We took our glasses to a secluded booth furthest from the door, and I sat down next to him, draping one smooth leg over his dark pant leg as I curled up with my drink. He smiled at me and clinked my glass, saying, Miss Haley, can I call you Winifred? <laughs> yes, I said immediately, surprised by my own earnestness. I was struck in that moment by something I didn't expect. In my line of work, I deal with creeps on the regular. I, it was just part of the landscape. There were the honest ones who wanted me to be their girlfriends or their wives, which I was happy to do, but then there were the ones that wanted me to be their sisters, or their stepkids, mm -hmm. or worse. Bruce was a primo creep, to be sure, but the way he looked at me just then said volumes. Perhaps he really did feel something for that girl he had once led to stardom immediately before tragedy struck. Maybe she was something special to him. And perhaps I was deluding myself a little, but it seemed to me that he looked right past my bleached hair and colored contacts and saw... Winifred. The moment passed. I took a large gulp from my glass and set it down a bit harder than I meant to, spilling a little of the pink liquid on the polished wooden tabletop. Bruce laughed and handed me a white handkerchief, which I used to wipe a bit of smudged lipstick from my face then immediately buried it playfully in my cleavage. Don't make me going after it, he said, <laughs> pulling me a little closer and taking a sip of scotch. Now, Mr. Quinn, that wouldn't exactly be appropriate, would it? I teased, sticking my chest towards him a little, daring him to take the handkerchief back. Perhaps I was playing it a little more drunkenly than I should have, considering the single drink I had taken, but I was having fun. Call me Bruce, and what's not appropriate? He asked seriously. You just turned 18, and now we are two co-workers enjoying a drink together after a long week of making movie magic. I smiled and emptied my glass, recalling my hasty research and confirming that, had Winifred Haley not vanished in the sudden departure, she would currently be celebrating her 18th birthday. It also reminded me of those fucking photos. Part of me hoped that the real Winifred Haley had allowed him to photograph her, but it wasn't much of a consolation, even if it were true. 
She had been a child then, after all. And she had wanted to be famous. What would a few compromising pictures be to someone like that? But why had Bruce called me and set up a date on this night? Was it the sign of a guilty conscience? Maybe he had waited until this moment to enact his fantasy so that it didn't feel so... predatorial. If the object of his desire was now a legal adult, he'd have nothing to feel ashamed of. To each his own, I thought, but still, those fucking photos. I made my decision. I need to make a phone call, I said hastily, setting down the empty glass and standing quickly. Bruce looked put off. What, now? He was upset. I was breaking the illusion. I have to let my parents know I won't be coming home tonight, I winked at him. And I couldn't tell if he was satisfied or disturbed by the lie, but I slunk off to the bathrooms all the same. When I returned, a fresh drink was waiting for me at the table. That took a while, Bruce said, but I shrugged and laughed tipsily. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Quinn. I, I mean, Bruce. <laughs> I giggled. That drink just went straight to my head. I collapsed into the booth, being sure to make as much physical contact as possible. I wanted him to be distracted, after all. Careful now, Bruce said, placing a steadying hand on my shoulder. I reached for the new drink, this one green, and took the opportunity to note that Bruce would be able to see the front door of the club, which could potentially throw a wrench in things. I took a quick sip of the nasty beverage, set down the glass, then grabbed Bruce's cock through his pants. He looked surprised, and we stared at each other for a tense moment, before he stiffened and we began making out like horny teenagers. We dove into the deeper recesses of the booth and out of view of the door, pawing and slobbering at each other like two of Los Angeles's feral coyotes as I unbuttoned his pants. He was loving this. I, on the other hand, was just barely managing to suppress my disgust, while simultaneously getting kind of a sick high off of what was about to happen to him. I heard some angry voices from near the vicinity of the bar, and Bruce seemed to notice as well, but I unbuttoned my shirt and shoved his face in my tits before he had a chance to see what was going on. And that's how the cops found us. Me straddling Bruce, who was red-faced and panting, his hands on my breasts, while I gave him a sloppy handjob in the back booth of the club. The two officers asked me to step away and button my blouse, which I did, leaving Bruce scrambling to hide his shame while he shouted, What the fuck?! I pulled up the lewd photos of Winifred Haley on my phone, the ones that I had just sent to the cops 20 minutes earlier, and aimed the screen at Bruce, who goggled at them in confusion. I was 16, Bruce, I said in the smallest, most damaged voice I could muster, and you took advantage of me. His eyes widened and he gaped at me as the cops dragged him out of the booth and slapped cuffs on him. You're nothing like Winifred! He finally shouted as the cops led him towards the door. I actually laughed at this, a little diabolical, I know, but part of me knew that, wherever Winifred Haley really was, she would be laughing the same way. It felt good. It felt really, really good. Plus, Bruce paid me in advance, so that was awesome. <laughs> Done. <laughs> wow. So, Eric, yeah. Uh, did you choose Winifred Haley as your your name because she starred in the appropriately titled You Just Don't Exist? <laughs> that may have been part of it. <laughs> but Is I that think the mostly. Name of the movie yep. That she was in? 
Oh yep. my goodness, it's too good. With, with Lucas Lee and Scott Pilgrim Volume 2. There you oh, go. There you go, everybody. Uh, but mostly, mostly the 16-year-old starlet thing. <laughs> but anyway. You know what's strange is that that is a very deep Scott Pilgrim cut, but that's also mm-hmm. in the movie. They say her name in the movie. That's true. That's the movie they're shooting up at Casa Loma. There you go. So, awesome. Thank you, sir. I will, can't wait to talk about that. Um, <laughs> but too. we have another story to listen to yep. here. Um, so, Marcus, Benny, you ready to take it away? I'm, I'm ready. I'm so glad I'm going second because yep. my tone is, uh, is going to bring the room down a little bit, I think. Oh, All that's right. good. Here. I'm glad I went first for the same reason. I want to get sad now. All right. Okay. Sharon woke early on the day she chose to die. She ate a simple breakfast, ignored the headlines in the paper, and went out to run as she had every morning for the past three years. She didn't bother with her headphones. They couldn't drown out the memory of Carter screaming her name. They would never be louder than the thumping of her heart as she ran through the guilt. No one made eye contact these days, which was just as well. Seeing someone was the first step to making a connection, and there was no point in that anymore. She got a few glares from those fuckers in white smoking their cigarettes as she ran down by the lake. (laughs) They didn't understand that anyone who had lost someone that October was never going to be able to move on. The world didn't need a cult of douchebags to remind them of what happened. At least they didn't talk. There was no joy when Sharon made it back to her apartment and noted she had achieved a personal best. She would never be fast enough for it to matter. She had long since lost that opportunity. Her last ever shower was just the right amount of scalding. She had told herself that she wouldn't indulge on her final day on Earth, but it was easier to face her own demise than to take a cold shower. She hoped Carter would forgive her. She was ahead of schedule when she finished dressing. A black shirt and jeans would take her to the facility, but she didn't know what she would be wearing at the end. She locked the door when she left the apartment, pausing just long enough to realize how useless that habit became when one didn't plan on coming back. She didn't bother to leave a note. Most likely no one would care that she was gone, and the Blood Brothers would take care of any legal matters. The station she listened to in the car only played music from before the sudden departure. In the last three years, there had been maybe two songs she could tolerate, so why take the risk? Traffic was as unbearable as ever, but she didn't swear at anyone on the road for old time's sake. She was still early when she arrived at the building, but the valet didn't seem to mind. He took her keys and told Sharon to step inside for registration. She followed his instruction without realizing that by the time the door shut behind her, she had already taken her last breath of open air. The man at registration wore a plain blue shirt with the twin red bees of the Blood Brothers embroidered over the left breast. He smiled at her and asked her how her day was before handing her the donor forms. She froze when she saw that there was a place where she had to enter Carter's name. He had always hated writing things out by hand, causing a terrible fear of doctor's offices. Oddly enough, he had liked doctors. Finally, Sharon got the courage to proceed and handed the completed paperwork to the man at the desk. He offered her prayer material, but she declined and instead waited in silence for the priest. No one else came into the waiting room during the half hour that she sat there. The priest couldn't have been much older than Sharon, and she bowed her head when she entered the waiting room. She called Sharon by her family name and ushered her back into the facility. The music that played in the wood-paneled hallway was from after 2011, but that was forgivable as it was a hymn for a church that had been founded in the wake of the sudden departure. 
The priest, who called herself Sister Lila, quickly saw that Sharon wasn't much for small talk. Sharon wondered how many people this woman had walked to, her, to their deaths. Did the priest really think it would make a difference? Did Sharon? They reached a small staging room at the end of the hallway. Sister Lila walked Sharon through the legal requirements on camera. Sharon was of sound mind. The Blood Brothers were not coercing her, and though the church shared data with the Department of the Southern Departure, they were in no way part of the United States government. After the official consent was given, both orally and signed, Sister Lila asked Sharon the question she had been dreading. Why are you doing this? Sharon had been preparing her answer for weeks, but the words refused to come out. The story was hers, and it was the one thing she could cling to in her final moments. Besides, her story wasn't what they really wanted. Sharon managed to say, Carter, and apparently that was enough. Sister Lila asked Sharon to remove her clothes so that they could begin the ritual. There would be no gown or robes. They didn't want the fabric to soak up any of the blood. It was too valuable. Sharon did as she was asked. She had kept her story, and as long as she alone held her shame, nakedness would not faze her. Beyond the soft light and warm colors of the staging room was a sterile white space. There was a clear glass collection container beneath the metal apparatus with leather straps. Sharon had been told they couldn't give her anything to ease the pain or make her unconscious as it would contaminate the blood. Instead, she was strapped into the metal structure and four lines were inserted into her arms and legs. The worst pain she would experience was the initial pricks. The blood began to flow into the glass below her. Sister Lila stood before her, head bowed in prayer. Sharon didn't believe in the prayer, but maybe there was something to the harvesting. The blood of the sister of a departed might give a clue as to where Carter went, where they all went. Either way, she hoped to see him soon, to apologize, to let him know he was loved. As the life drained out of Sharon, her body began to shiver with the cold. The straps held her in place until she had no will to fight anymore. She thought of the warmth of a fire, and the memory rushed back to her. Carter's screaming that had never left her in the years since he was taken escalated from a dull throb to a full panic. She saw the flames off in the distance. The cabin was burning, and Sharon was running as hard as she could to save her brother. He was shouting her name over and over, pleading for help, pleading for a way to escape. She didn't know then what had started the fire, and she couldn't remember now what had been so important as to take her away from her brother. As she got closer to the cabin, she started yelling his name in reply, hoping against hope that he would hang on, knowing that she could save him. She ran as hard as she could until the screaming stopped, then she ran harder still. When she made it to the cabin, she kicked in the door, smoke filled her lungs, and she called out, Carter! Carter! But there was no reply. She searched for him until she was badly burned and on the verge of passing out, her wheezes sounding nothing like his name. When she collapsed outside and drew out her phone with a charred hand, she found the police lines were all jammed. The world had gone to hell and her angel of a brother had left it. In three years since that day, it had never left her mind. Sharon could never know if she would have been able to save him. But if only she had been faster, Carter wouldn't have left this world thinking he was alone. In his last moments before the departure, he had been calling for her. Fear and the world crashing in around him, and she hadn't been there to answer. No one knew if the departed had died or were taken somewhere else. Maybe Sharon's sacrifice would help solve that mystery. 
All she knew as her blood drained away her consciousness is that she would never stop running until she found him. The end. Ah. Oh my. Ah. So many tears. <laughs> oh, oh no. Tears am, of sadness and of joy. I'm a sad panda. Oh uh, my goodness. I'm glad. Oh. Should be. Oh. Uh, gentlemen, for the second week in a row, such such different. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Um, but also, once again, uh, capturing different asset or aspects of the piece or of the of the work. Um, and I'm just going to say off the top, great work, both of you. Um, Aww, I was you. very Thanks. pleased for very different reasons for both of these. Um, so one, I'm still kind of getting through this last one. So yeah, <laughs> still letting that mull over. Um, so uh, Marcus, I, I, I don't have tears in my eyes for the, the people at home. There are no tears in my eyes, but there's definitely a sinking feeling in my gut right now. <laughs> um, so you definitely hit the, the, my, my challenge to you to make this a sad one. Um, wow, um, (laughs) gentlemen, yeah, this was, these were very good, um, I know you kind of gave me a little bit of crap that I didn't give you any characters, um, (laughs) and kind of like the conflict within the show, but I think you both really hit on what I really wanted, which was kind of like side stories in the same world, like what if we told little stories that were maybe like webisodes or something that took place in the world after the sudden departure, and I think both of these stories hit on that very well. So you hit what I wanted. Um, If Eric's didn't necessarily make me cry, it still had (laughs) plenty of the sorts of reactions and stories that people are going through in the aftermath of this event. Um, So kudos. Um, now I want to get into the differing assignments that I gave you because, uh, you guys do not know what the other got. Um, so let's, let's start with Eric since he went first. Yeah. Um, and we'll start with the question (laughs) that he he asked. Um, My question was, was silly and I knew it was silly. It was, it was a silly one given how heavy the material was. Exactly. I just asked if there were fuck words and titties in it. <laughs> so when you started it, like almost immediately with swears and mentionings of tits, I was yep. like, he hit it right off the bat. <laughs> there you go. I, I knew what I wanted to write before going into this. I'm like, yep. okay, Marcus is going to do a serious thing. I'm going to do just something silly. Oh but. my goodness. Yep. You you hit yep. HBO. That was uh, like the, all I could think of throughout the entire thing was like, this isn't TV. Uh, <laughs> And then, uh, Eric, your bonus points, which I you did not hit, um, or at least I don't recall noticing anything related to them, was uh, strange animal behaviors. Um, there was the a res- very fleeting reference to feral coyotes in there, but uh, you're right. That, I didn't that was a that metaphor. I think that was a metaphor. <laughs> it, it was. But- <laughs> Weren't they making out like feral coyotes? <laughs> yeah, they were. Yeah, pretty much. Pawing and slobbering at each other like okay. Los Angeles's feral coyotes. Well, oh, feral okay. coyotes exist in L.A. right now. So, do they? Uh, yeah, they and do. They get oh, frisky. Okay. Ooh, and well, they are very so normal world. Well, I missed it. All right. Um, so that was Eric's, and then Marcus, uh, your question, um, which 
came into practice in your story, at least how I understood it. And I want to get on this a little bit regarding the end of your story in a little bit. Um, but you asked about the physical effects of those that departed. Mm. Had the physical world been affected by these people just poof, vanishing? Um, yeah, like planes crashing, cars mm-hmm. running out the road, that kind of thing. Which is indeed the case in the in the show. Um, and in fact, Eric, since you weren't privy to that conversation, I told him how one of the characters was, you know, um, actually affected by something like this. Um, his wife was um, put in a vegetative state from a car crash with a departed person, or their car, at least. Gotcha. Um, and then bonus points was, again, also the crux of the story, uh, a new religion. Um, have feature or mention a new religion that has popped up in the uh, aftermath of the departure. Cool. So those were your bonus points. So before we get into more discussion of our reactions here, let's, uh, let's get into how this process was for you guys. So Eric, yeah. how'd it go? Um, this was interesting. I, I kind of hit on this concept pretty quickly about having a, uh, basically a, um, an escort who, who takes the roles of the departed. I thought that was an interesting place to go with it, especially since I, I wanted to try to get something dramatic that also gives me a chance to have, uh, titties and fuck words, as I already said. <laughs> Um, and I'm going to keep using those specific words. <laughs> because <laughs> because we it got makes the me tank, laugh. Man. They know what they're getting into. Because it makes me laugh. Um, whoa, there's like an angry wasp outside or something. I hit on that pretty quickly. Um, and honestly, it, tonally, I was having trouble with this one. Um, I read it a lot ditzier than I really needed to. And uh, that also probably colored it to be a little more silly. Um, but it was really hard for me to find the balance and really hit the the serious, dramatic tone that you wanted. Um, but again, I was like, eh, Marcus is going to do something dramatic. I'll try something a little bit lighter. So that's kind of okay. where I went. Sounds good. Yeah, okay. I definitely want to talk a bit about, my, about that because that's important. And I liked a lot of the, the things that you did. They were, they were challenges, big challenges. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about that a little bit more but marcus the process for you yeah i wanted to get serious i wanted to to do something that would have some feels in it uh so i thought of just the image of someone running to save someone for a completely unrelated moment when they departed i just i liked that image so much that that became the core of my story and the tragedy of someone living with it's not that I didn't save my brother, but it's that he didn't know I was trying. You know, that mm. he left all alone and in fear. So that just struck me as a kind of a powerful moment, and that's what I built this around. And then the the cult, I was trying to think, uh, and I think Eric, without you know having the assignment of doing a religion, did a great job of coming up with what are the ramifications, you know, what are the types of things, industries that would exist mm-hmm. afterwards. Yep. And I thought there would be superstition around the blood relatives of the departed. Mm-hmm. So that's where my cult came from. And I also, you know, got to hint at some wider world stuff. Like, you can see that the government's allowed euthanasia, um, people who are just willing to not live in this world. 
especially if they might get some questionable information from it. I mean, that's, that's a very scary thing to be doing experiments on people's blood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and that is something that is mentioned in the show, that there are government agencies or private agencies that are doing weird experiments to try to figure out what happened. Even if we don't explicitly see them, we hear oh, about cool. them. Nice. Um, so. And there's, so from a writing perspective, there's one thing I wanted to mention which is that this is very much a tell-don't-show piece. Um, it, it comes from a very detached perspective, so we don't get any actual dialogue in it. We don't get the moment-to-moment in the scenes. Things are just described. And I did that to try to get the sense of this woman who's just floating along in her last day, mm. that she's not really experiencing these moments. It's just these broad sweeps. That's great that you were, you know, consciously doing that because that came across in the feeling of the piece. Definitely. Even if I did not pick up on that, I, you, I didn't until you just said that. <laughs> I don't think I would have noticed that. But <laughs> the, the feeling that you're talking about was within that piece. I felt that. Um, so, yeah, so let's talk a bit about these. So, one, Eric, yes, you, despite not hitting on the, the sad, the mourning aspects of the this world mm-hmm. as marcus pointed out you you did something by creating a new role a new type of job that has sprung up in this world and that is perfect um cool one thing that i believe i mentioned in the pitch segment is that um there is a company that creates like body doubles of the departed and oh. you kind of took this one step further than that by having people just emulate those people which was really interesting um mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, Great. So, and just like the details of that, you know, that this guy had pictures, you know, that he wanted to kind of create it. There was almost like a vertigo aspect to it too, the film that mm-hmm. I really enjoyed, you know, just this, and the, the, the club that you set it in, just perfect for this, this story, just lurid, you know, red, deep Hollywood underground, just the perfect sort of setting for this um what i really want to commend you for even though i think i kind of agree with what you said that i i would the end kind of missed the mark for me Mm -hmm. was going for something this challenging and hard to hit in terms of the sexual the sexuality of this character and the kind of politics of her job um that's that's a pretty tight or a thin tightrope to walk and i I like this character because I I felt that you tried, at least in the early goings, you didn't shy away from who she was and that she's still a person who does this for a living. So there is some compromise in terms of her compassion towards the people that she serves. Um, though I did feel that by letting her off easy at the end, um, I was kind of let down by that. Sure. Even though I think she did the right thing. I think that was the safer exit to this story. Oh, for sure. Um, and I think if this were, say, twice as long or more, I can pl- I could have played more with um, the conflict between uh, the responsibility she has for her job in that like, she exists in this space where really she's there to serve whoever's paying her. So she mm-hmm. should be whatever they're asking for, you know, with it, as long as nobody else is being compromised, you know? Um, like that's just what she should be doing versus her own moral concepts of, oh, this guy's like a pervert pedophile type and he should, and he has pictures 
that he should not have, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing, and he should be punished for this. But in the short piece, it kind of translates, like that conflict translates to being just kind of wishy-washy, not really sure if she's going to act or not. Um, and And I think the ending being as kind of weak as it is is an indication of that that uh had there had i given it more time and built that conflict up more i could say have her end in a place that isn't as uh bad is punished and i get off scot-free sort of thing Mm -hmm. um but to like wrap it up really quickly and like have her kind of basically get in trouble for her decision that she made kind of makes it feel like like I was afraid of of making it appear that she was getting punished for the lifestyle she had chosen, and that wasn't what I wanted to say. So I went kind of the easy route to avoid mm-hmm. any avoid saying anything that I wasn't trying to say. Yeah, which could oh, go ahead, Marcus. Go ahead. Oh, I, I was gonna say, uh, you know, I, I think for me the big question I had was mm-hmm. why now. Right, so I didn't know what was different about this particular guy because you had mentioned some really creepy stuff, yeah, um, mm-hmm. like incestual relationships and these other things, and she also gave the impression that this guy hadn't slept with her with uh, Winifred. Sure. Um, so these pictures, you know, like I'm just wondering what was the thing that really pushed her over. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so that was, yeah, that was the big thing that was missing for me. Gotcha. All right. And now, Marcus, your side. Um, I loved the, um, again, the, the religion really hit on that. Very, It felt right for this um, for this world. Um, but also, I you really inserted a lot of the, the small little world details that I really enjoyed. My favorite of which was the radio station um, that only played music from pre-departure. I, I, I really enjoyed that element of it. And then also... Very small detail about how she noted that she still locked the door when she left her apartment. Um, mm. I I liked the attention to these small details because again it painted the picture of the world post this event and also the people and her um, her psychology at this point in her life. Um, but I did at the ending, and again it could have just been again first time hearing it and not physically reading it. Um, I was confused by the ending. Um, I wasn't sure in the moment if he had just died from the fire and that the event had something to do with the departure. The fire had something to do with the departure. Um, or if he, like it seems like you intended that he was in the fire, it had nothing to do with the departure, and then he departed. Um, that was a little lost somewhere in there for me in some aspect so you know what's interesting about that too is that there's if that is the case that he was in this fire and then he departed uh one of the ways you could have gone with it was the assumption that the departure uh actually saved her brother's life because it's like somebody swooped in and took him out of the fire we don't know where where he went but that's a possibility, and it's it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting thing. Makes you think. Definitely, yeah. I, I I thought uh, similarly. It was it was uh, just a, a fun concept. Um, I think 
so the trick that I had, uh, you know, like the same question criticism I directed at you, Eric, could be mm-hmm. easily put on this as well, is um, why now? Why is three years on the time that she decides to join the Blood Brothers and oh, give sure. up her body? You know, honestly, I think you fix that in the first line. You say, you know, she woke up on the day she had decided to end her life. It's like, bam, she'd made a decision. People make decisions. It didn't seem like there was an, an inciting incident, but this is the day that I have written on the calendar, and that, that worked for me. Yeah, same okay. here. That never really entered into the equation. I mean, you, she's lived three years with this, and it hasn't gone away, you know? I think that would be enough of a reason. Um, not that we should condone the reasons for <laughs> suicide. Uh, but, uh, yeah, all right. Um Anything else that you gentlemen would like to say about each other's pieces before we get to final judgments? Uh, yeah, i just say, Marcus, you did a fantastic job. I really felt it. I think this is one of the most emotional um, sham fictions we've ever heard. Uh, so I have to commend you for that. Um, you really did. You, you, you set out to pull at heartstrings, and I think you did. And this kind of impending, somewhat like useless death is a very, very tragic concept, and you used it very well. So, very well done. Thank you. And Eric, I, I have to also say I really enjoyed your piece. Um, I, I just thought that it was, you know, it, it's a tough concept to write about. Oh, for sure. And I appreciate that you did a take on it. Um, really good exploration of what could be happening in the world at that point. Awesome. Thank you. Agreed. And with that... We have reached the moment that you've all been waiting for. Oh, God. Final judgments. As you all know from last week, there are no winners here in Dueling Sham Fiction. Uh, we don't <laughs> like to do that sort of thing here. Um, but, Eric, you lose. Oh. Shucks. That being said, two very good stories, very different stories, but both of them could have been little, you know, little side cuts from the, from the world of The Leftovers. Fantastic. So, T- tell me where to watch this. Yes, so if you out there want to watch the very heavy, heavy drama of The Leftovers, and I highly recommend you do, check it out on the HBO. Uh, it is available on HBO Go, HBO Now, all those services. And the third season is going to be coming out later this year, I think. Uh, they haven't made an official date announcement, Ooh. but it's coming out. So I think that's right. Yeah, it, it's, it's coming out. Third and final season. Yep, third and final. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's... Uh, there are 20 episodes so far. They do 10-episode seasons, so check it out. Any other things to say before we sign off, guys? This was fun. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it again the dredge. All right. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> we can't. We can't do it. I just I want our listeners to know in case they ever encounter the dredge. It's good to remind them week to week. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> all right. Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening to Dueling Sham Fictions, and we got one more week of this Yay! coming at you. So, uh, ooh. ooh, this is exciting. Gonna be writing again next week, head to head with Missy Carlson. Oh, you're going down. Oh, that's it. All right. All right. See, See you next week. Bye. Bye bye. Sham Fiction is produced by Two Jackets Productions, which is Eric Carlson, Marcus Mann, and Andrew Neal. Special thanks to Reed Reimer for providing the music. For a full list of episodes and to read this week's fiction, visit shamfiction.com. Follow us on Twitter at shamfiction, and please, don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. Sham Fiction. Write what you don't know.
Hey, Sham listeners! Next week, our series of duels concludes with the reigning least loser, Andrew, going up against the slightly more loser, Eric. Who will lose less? Find out as our dynamic duo take on a superhero story that reads like it was written by Aaron Sorkin. See this great machine in action! Until then, I've got to build some dangerous things I saw in my dreams.